My class is full, Mr. Chalky, full, with students who can translate Old English at least as quickly and skillfully as you, and they've already had two terms to establish themselves. Good afternoon. Hello, Emil. Professor? Since childhood, I have been fascinated with language, obsessed with it. I've invented my own, full, complete languages. Look, this is, it's, it's everything, from the breast hoard. My heart, the treasure of the breast. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we are watching 2019's Tolkien, directed by Dome Karakowski, written by David Gleason and Stephen Beresford. It stars Nicholas Holt as J.R.R. Tolkien, Lily Collins as Edith Bratt, and Cole Meany as Father Francis. I don't know if he's actually Irish. I just slip into that accent every time I talk <laughs> about priests. Anyway, we are watching this movie because we wanted to have a Nicholas Holt movie here in the mix. And we've seen X-Men first class so many times. It just didn't seem right to throw that into the mix. Cause we would come with so many prior experiences that it wouldn't be as fresh. Yeah. We like to watch movies that we've never watched before. And while we have made exceptions in right. the past and this movie before seeing it, this movie feels special because it's about such an iconic figure in our culture, it's kind of hard to describe how he fits into modern culture. It's like C.S. Lewis. Uh-huh. You know, they're just there and everybody's read his work and it's beloved around the world. So, I don't know. The movie seems special. Okay, so the IMDb summary, it says, The formative years of the orphaned author J.R.R. Tolkien as he finds friendship, love, and artistic inspiration among a group of fellow outcasts at school. Watching the trailer for this movie, it was very clear, okay, we're doing a biopic, but the way they edited the trailer, it just seemed so far up its own ass and epic and so self-important. It kind of turned me off. Oh my goodness, really? It was well... meant to inspire. It was very clearly meant to say, oh my gosh, this is going to be the cinematic biopic and all biopics because his life was so amazing and all it did was make me as the cynical movie viewer that i am be like oh gosh this thing just feels <laughs> oh look at us we're so important i'm like oh i kind of feel bad that that was my reaction to it but that was my reaction to it i definitely see where you're coming from yeah the references that connect his own life to the books were very heavy-handed. Oh, yeah. Very. The very end of the trailer is like, it's a fellowship. It, like him and his school buddies talking right. about how, oh, we're going to change the world using art. And I'm like, please <laughs> spare me. Like I said, that's my own cynicism coming forward right there. I am pretty sure that this movie is going to be excellent. But the way they tried so hard with the trailer... To make it seem so inspiring. <laughs> it's tainted me. I do think that the trailer was cut very epic. 
I don't think the movie is going to be as epic as the trailer. I think no. the movie is going to be a biopic. All right. So we're sitting here in our studio. We've seen the trailers for 1917. The World War One sequence in Tolkien from the trailer reminds me a lot of World War One movies like 1917, like Gallipoli, the whole individual amidst the horrors of war and it changes them somehow. But then again, the trailer also shows this other side of Tolkien's life where he's back in England, where he's home, where he's interacting with Lily Collins and there is this romance that's forming. And I don't know, I'm not sure how they're going to balance that. If it's just going to be like, okay, boyhood, school time, war in the middle, romance at the end, like, are they going to split it up? Are they going to intermingle it? I'm very interested to see how they divide up his life and make it seem interesting and coherent. There was a line in the trailer from Lily Collins where she says, tell me a story in any language you'd like. So it is kind of setting up for the possibility that he's telling her stories of his childhood, of what it was like to go to war throughout the course of their courtship, mm -hmm. which I'm okay with. I could definitely deal with time jumps if it's done in that way, where there's a very easy to understand framework. Mm -hmm. I would be very pleased with that. But other than just being a little turned off by the trailer, I don't necessarily expect this movie to be bad. I expect it to be pretty good. I would hope it'd be pretty good. I mean, big budget movie like it was. Right. Now, I do have to admit that when we decided to put this movie on our list, I thought to myself, oh, wait, did it come out already? Is it on video for us to get so that we can watch? Or do we have to wait until it does? And here I see in the notes that you wrote that it was released in 2019. And that went right over my head. I didn't even notice when it came out. Well, I mean, was it on your radar to begin with? Not really. I, Lord of the Rings, I like it. It's fine. It's great. Books, movies, fine. But I'm not a particular fan. Right. When it comes to being the kind of people to spend a lot of time invested in Lord of the Rings... I leave that to Norman and Cassandra over at the Lord of the Rings Minute. Absolutely. I, I let them take care of it. I love hopping in to their podcast every once in a while and getting to analyze very, very small, dare I say, minute segments. Mm -hmm. But that's enough for me. Okay. Now, you watched The Theory of Everything, right? I did. I was actually going to bring up The Theory of Everything because it feels like a very similar movie. That movie, I was anticipating it coming out in the theaters. I didn't go see it in the theaters, but once it came to video, we own it, if I'm not mistaken. And Pretty I've sure. seen it several times and I cry every time. And so that movie, because it's about somebody who I am more interested in his work, means a lot more to me than I'm expecting this movie to. Okay. Because I kind of figured, because Hawking is the same... I guess, cinematic archetype, I think, as Tolkien is shaping up to be, you know, grew up in England, went to the boys boarding school, went off to war type of thing. Did Hawking ever go off to war or was he just in that Goldilocks zone of not having to? I don't think he did. Okay. That, I, it makes no difference one way or the other, but, you know, that sort of thing where they're doing a biopic and there is a large portion at a British boarding school. I yeah. don't know. I don't know what I'm saying at this point. So that's probably a good sign that we should stop here. I'm going to play the trailer for everybody, and when we come back, we will let you know what we think of the movie. 
Since childhood, I have been fascinated with language. I've invented my own. You invented an entire language? Yes. I made stories. Legends. Tell me a story. In any language you want. It's about journeys. The journeys we take to prove ourselves. It's about adventures. We should form a club, a brotherhood. We change the world through the power of art. Music, poetry. And what about Tolkien? I want to write something. It's about magic beyond anything anyone has ever felt before. What it means to love. To be loved. language. I have to tell you, Mr. Tolkien, I've never come across anything like it. This is more than just a friendship. It's an alliance. An invincible alliance. A fellowship. We're back. So, Julia, what is your initial reaction after sitting down to watch Tolkien? My initial reaction is a little bit meh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I'm really hoping that as we discuss the movie, that I will become a little bit less meh about it because on paper, it's a good movie. And I'm having a hard time really pinpointing what I feel met about it so i'm hoping that feeling fades as we're like oh hey i like that part and this part was cool and things like that okay i would definitely say that it's the best nicholas holt performance i've seen however that's not saying much i think i can count on one hand the number of things that i've really seen nicholas holt in most of that hand is taken up by x-men films <laughs> Other than that, I feel very ambivalent about the whole thing. It was very well shot, but I did not find it very engrossing. I don't feel moved by it. Truth be told, and pardon my choice of terminology, the movie seemed really up its own ass. It did. And <laughs> now, okay, so I'm finding that we're kind of on the same page. Yeah. But while I'm hoping that our conversation will help me like the movie better, you do not seem to be in that position. You seem to be more aware of what you didn't like about it than I am, which is typical. You're better at vocalizing those sorts of things than I am. But I agree with you. Technically, it was a great movie. There was just something, like you said, not engrossing, not absorbing. There was a couple times I looked at the clock. This movie was one hour, 50 some odd minutes. It didn't Thank even hit the two goodness. hour mark. But... Yeah, it reeked of 
this movie is being possibly bankrolled by the surviving estate of the person the movie is about, and we have to paint him as prolific of a character as everybody considers him to already be. I'm not saying that J.R.R. Tolkien, prolific writer and professor at Oxford and all of these other things, needs to be dragged through the mud, but it seemed like the whole movie was, oh man, look at all these bright eyes and high ideals, and it did not strike me as something that was altogether engrossing, as I mentioned before. We should probably move pretty quickly into the plot observations, that yes. way we stop going around in this little twirly gig where we keep complaining. <laughs> right, because there are things that I liked about the movie. Absolutely. I don't have too much to say about Tolkien's early life, except that once Edith was introduced as a character, the movie became much more interesting for me. Oh, I agree. Edith was fantastic. Yeah. Now, that uh, was Lily Collins as Edith. Yes. I thought it was very well played. I don't know anything about either Lily Collins or Edith Tolkien, but it felt well cast. She was delightful. She challenged uh, John. Different Ra people called him different things. She called him Ronald. John Ronald, whatever his middle initial was, Tolkien. Yeah. She challenged him intellectually. I found their relationship the highlight of my viewing experience. Just seeing the two of them play off each other. Because this movie, like all biopics centered around white guys from England in the turn of the century was all about men and their interactions with other men and how they feel about things they discuss with other men and the fact that Edith and John... Re uh, she called him Ronald. Just call him Ronald. Yeah, and the fact that she had this relationship with young Ronald Tolkien, it felt so much richer. I really liked the way the two of them played off each other. And there were scenes with just the two of them that I preferred to other whole parts of the movie. I agree. She was one of the best characters. And branching off from that, one of the scenes that really stood out to me that actually drew a response from me was the scene where they were out to dinner, lunch at the fancy schmancy restaurant. Mm -hmm. And he's telling a story and he's telling a story that he's making up as he goes along. I appreciated the authorship going on in his head, and we kind of saw it play out where he was like, no, 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 that's not quite right. Let's try this other thing. And you take this big, bustling restaurant, and the scene brought it down to just the two of them sitting together. And you could see as this is happening that they're falling in love, and I felt that that was well communicated. That scene really stuck out to me. Keeping on the subject of Edith, another scene between her and the male characters that I really enjoyed was when Tolkien introduced her to his little boys club. What mm. were they? The, the TCBS or something like that? Yeah, it was their four initials. Yeah, it's something that like it's, it's It didn't flow. Tolkien and his three friends that he met at school. Right. Anyway. It's their dead poet society. Yeah. So he introduces her to them and she finds an opportunity to discuss with another member of his friends group something that she is deeply interested in. Music. She plays the piano. One of Tolkien's friends is, I a guess, composer. the son of a composer and a composer himself. Yeah. And so she's actually able to 
start up a conversation and discuss composers and things like that. And you watch Tolkien and he gets this look on his face and then he's like, oh, we've got to leave. We've got to get out of here. And I'm like, is he jealous that she is interacting with another man in a way that shows that she has personal interests and he's getting jealous of that attention? I can actually speak to this personally because I know exactly how he was feeling and I would have wanted to do the same thing. Putting myself in his shoes, I would have been feeling great, huge levels of anxiety because this girl that he is courting, that he has this friendship with, who, let's be frank, is of a lower class than the rest of his friends, they're having this discussion and the two do not agree. They are about to dive into a debate about Wagner and long operas. She's a fan. He, uh, Charles, can't remember which one. I do not remember. I think it was Christopher. Christopher, who was the yes, you're right. Yeah. So she and Christopher are about to get into this debate. That would have driven me to the point of needing to find a way out of the situation. <laughs> I would have been feeling so much anxiety about this interaction that I would have looked for a way to get out. And those types of things, I don't consider myself someone who has anxiety. I get anxious about things, but not on a scale that needs help. I just get anxious. Mm. But when I have those types of interactions, when I have those types of experiences that I feel anxiety about, I look for a way out. And if it means completely leaving the situation, just bailing like that, yeah, I am open to that option. <laughs> And to stick to it, to just get through it, is a very difficult thing. So, yeah, I would have done the same thing in his shoes. And also on Edith's side, I totally get why she was so mad at him for doing that. She was having a real conversation, a real intellectual grown-up debate where nobody was insulted, nobody disliked the other because they had a different opinion about music. It was a debate, an intellectual debate. And that's what that group of kids, men... That's what they were there for. So it would have been fine. But as someone who feels that anxiety, it doesn't feel like it's going to be fine. Mm. To wrap up our Edith conversation, which I think it's clear that for both of us, she's our favorite character. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Another aspect of the movie that bothered me quite a bit, and I think it would should bother most people, is Tolkien's father's reaction to Edith. Talking about the priest guy, right? Yes. Um, Chief O'Brien. Chief O'Brien. Yes. <laughs> so... Chief O'Brien forbids Ronald from seeing her, and he forces Ronald to choose between Oxford and Edith, mm -hmm. declaring her to be an unfit match Yeah, for Ronald, which, no, she's exactly the right fit match. Like, class-wise, they're on the same level. So, get off your high horse, Chief O'Brien. Anywho, later at the very end of the movie, after Edith proves herself to his father then his father gives his approval that really bothered me that she had to do this thing above and beyond which is just sitting by his sickbed which when you love somebody and you're afraid for their life you sit by their sickbed it's kind of what you do it bothers me that she had to prove her worthiness in that way well the whole thing with tolkien and this priest his name was father francis okay yeah so the whole relationship between them, because Father Francis came into Tolkien's life because Tolkien's mother needed help. They lived out in the country. They didn't they didn't have the money because 
Tolkien's father, I guess, disappeared. Whoa, or whoa, died. whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, Father Francis is not Tolkien's actual He's father. He's not his actual father? No. I had no idea. No. I thought he was his dad. No. What? Ma- Mabel Tolkien, played by Laura Donnelly, the woman that you're like, who is that? I've seen her in stuff before, mm-hmm. which you have seen her in other things. It's just, you know, little roles. No, he was. A benefactor. A benefactor. Someone from the church that came in and saved the family, brought them to Cambridge so that they could not be thrown out of their home. And then he was also the one that found Tolkien and his brother a home in Mrs. Faulkner's place. Yeah. So Father Francis was, I guess, charged with the raising of these boys. He was their legal guardian up until I believe the age of 21 was one of the major things. And so Father Francis is thinking... I've got all of this priestly duties, but I've also got these boys to watch out for. So, yeah, of course I'm going to forbid them from doing any sort of cavorting and courting when they really should be focusing on their studies. I understood why he was like, you need to choose between Oxford or Edith because as a young man, you need to get your education and make sure that you have all of the skills or expertises that you need to go and be successful in the real world. Instead of running off and getting married young and focusing on family instead of, you know, being a proper English gentleman with an education and a Ivy League education. I said education twice, but honestly, I'm not one for these stuffy British biopic type situations. Boys in England going away to boarding school and addressing their headmasters and being all very prim and proper. It is something I have zero interest in. I do not find it captivating at all. Honestly, it just seems like Harry Potter nonsense to me every time I see it. Well, I mean, it is because the structure of school in Harry Potter is based on the British education system. Yeah, so it and is. it's all nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think that the movie really got interesting until he went to Oxford, accepting the Edith bits. Right. But- to harp on your point about the British education system and how obnoxious it is, when they were kids, when they were, what, like 13, 14, maybe 15, and going to that tea room and taking up that whole section oh and being loud and rowdy, that poor waitress proposing to her, ew. Tolkien and his friends were so obnoxious. They were so full of themselves. Oh, yes. Which is, I think, part of the point. Yeah. But- they made their point. They were full of themselves. Yeah. Robert, who is the son of the headmaster at the school they're all going to, which yep. the headmaster, I think, is played by the guy who plays Lord Grantham in Downton Abbey. I yes. don't remember his name off the top of my head. I don't but... either, but his name is Lord Grantham. Yeah. Anyway, it's Robert, Christopher, who is the composer kid, and then Jeffrey, who is the poet. Yes. You know who they remind me of in Les Mis? When it gets to the revolution section of the book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The students. The students who go to a cafe, pub, restaurant type place. And plan their revolution. And plan their revolution. And it's funny because it kind of ends up with the same results where half of them are dead by the end of the movie. (laughs) And it was all pointless. I mean, I guess. Okay. World War One was not pointless. It just... Feels pointless when you look at individuals. And it 
kind of feels a little pointless when you look at the grand scheme of things. Yeah, you start it only to, dragged us into World War II. You start to ask, what did it really accomplish in the long run? But that's a whole lot of <laughs> geopolitical nonsense that we really don't need to consider because we, we're watching a movie. I feel like we've kind of lost track of what we're talking about. Going off of the Oxford situation, mm-hmm. there is a bit of drama where... Tolkien cannot afford to go to Oxford. He doesn't have the capital in and of himself. He doesn't have the scholarships to do it. And so he gets absolutely trashed and is stumbling around in the courtyard late at night, shouting in one of his made up languages because he starts pretty early in this movie making up languages. And he catches the eye of one Professor Wright. And let me see if I can find real quick. The name of the actor who played. Yeah, he's one of those actors who has been everywhere. It's Derek Jacoby, who you may recognize as being Probert in Gosford Park. He was Gracchus in Gladiator. Was he in Star Trek? He was the Metatron in Good Omens. Next Generation. He was not in Star Trek. Oh, I can almost picture him in uh, Alien Garb. But yeah, he's one of those character actors who's just all over the place. He was the voice of Claude Frollo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Ah, I know where I saw him before. In the 1996 Kenneth Branagh-directed Hamlet, the one that's four hours long, he plays Claudius. Okay. That's where I recognize him from. Anyway, Professor Wright. He is the professor of language there at Oxford, and Tolkien pretty much attaches himself to Professor Wright, and they start this... I guess, educational professional relationship between the two of them. And we really get to see Tolkien honing in that mastery of language that he's been cultivating all his life because his mom was a big storyteller. She would tell his brother and him stories from the old classics like Beowulf and stuff like that. And so he makes up dwarven languages and elvish languages. And that's one of the things that was happening in the restaurant scene that you mentioned earlier. But I like that there is someone at Oxford who was able to, I guess, capture Tolkien's passion and direct it in a more focused way. Yeah, I guess that's something that does happen in the real world. But there were just so many things about this story that felt so movie-like instead of real world-like. And this is one of those scenes where Tolkien gets drunk, he's out on the quad raising a ruckus, And just happens to catch the eye of the language professor and then runs into him the next day. And it just feels so contrived. What I really liked about Professor Wright finding Tolkien at the fencing competition is that he asked him about the language he was shouting in the quad. And he was like, did I detect any sort of finish in there? And Tolkien's like, yeah, I stole from it. And he's like, "Uh -uh, languages never steal. They're inspired by. Yeah. I'm like, good on ya. And it's great because Tolkien had a book in his possession and the guy asked about it, what he thought of it. And Tolkien gave him his opinion of the parts of the book that he had already read. And it was only after they had walked a while together did Tolkien realize that the guy he was talking to, Professor Wright, was the author of the book that he was carrying. Yeah. And he did not give it a glowing review. Not exactly. No. It's like if the director of the movie listened to this podcast. Yeah, but I mean. Or, you know, the director of our movies listened to the podcast. Yeah, imagine how that would be. Yeah, nerve wracking. <laughs> Remember the whole thing about anxiety that I was talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. 
But it's that relationship between Tolkien and Professor Wright that leads us into the point where war has been declared. This is the First World War, which if you ever get into a time machine and go back to that time, don't ever refer to it as the First World War. Otherwise, you're going to get a lot of people very curious about what you know. Anyway. It's the war to end all wars. Right. Is what someone in the movie said. And it just made me laugh because that war led into World War II, which led into Korea and Vietnam and the Cold War. Like, World War I has never stopped. But the one good thing about the war in this movie is that it does bring all of the friends back together again. They've kind of scattered to the four winds, the different schools that they're all going to, and they get one last hurrah spending time together before they get shipped off. But it's also where Edith and Tolkien get to have a bit of a reunion. He got a letter from her saying that she was engaged and she went to see him off before he left for the war. Yeah, that also felt a bit contrived. They like, <laughs> so they spend like the afternoon together. Mm -hmm. I think they probably were together for a couple of hours and everything was polite and chaste and happiness for the future and all this stuff. Very friendly, but nothing beyond that. And they part ways and he walks off into the crowd towards the ship. And then he comes out of nowhere and I love you and they kiss and I'll wait for you and all that kind of stuff. So the very last second, they're back together, mm -hmm. which is very romantic and lovely and real life just isn't like that. It's as it should be. <laughs> but as they go into war, we catch up with the framing device that's been happening since the beginning of this movie from the onset. We see Tolkien at war. He is a sergeant or something like that. And he is making his way through the trenches as scenes from his life play out in his mind. That's the framing device we've had throughout this movie. And it's basically him with a enlisted man in tow. Named Sam. Of course. Of a course. companion named Sam. And he is trying to make his way through the battlefield to find Jeffrey, his friend, the poet. So he knew that Jeffrey wasn't far away. He had heard that Jeffrey had stopped writing home and Jeffrey hadn't been answering Tolkien's letters either. Does it feel weird for fellow soldiers to be writing each other? I guess there's just such this image in your mind of soldiers in war writing home to their loved ones who are safe and sound. And then loved ones who are safe and sound writing to their soldier at the front. There's just such a pop culture image that is conjured so the idea of soldiers at the front writing letters to soldiers at the front kind of never gets discussed so it felt a little bit odd to me but they're friends yeah. why can't they write each other sending mail is sending mail it doesn't matter where it goes exactly the major thing about the scenes at war is that they warp reality there are images that you as a viewer see and you assume that tolkien sees them in turn as he's going over the battlefield, there's one point where there is a bunch of smoke in the distance and suddenly a dragon materializes out of the smoke. The dragon opens its mouth and starts breathing fire. And wouldn't you know, that's actually a bunch of Germans with flamethrowers. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of imagery of a black rider and a white rider battling it out on the battlefield. And there are raids that are flying around in the air and all of this fantastic stuff faces coming out of the smoke and i think it's really well done because that's all iconography that you would recognize as someone familiar with lord of the rings yeah i guess so 
Like the face in the smoke is very clearly the Balrog. The dragon is very clearly Smaug. The Dark Rider is very obviously a Ringwraith or something like that. And then there's one final shot of Tolkien at war before he wakes up in a hospital where he's standing in the midst of a battleground and there's a giant plume of smoke. And out of that smoke comes what you could assume is the image of Sauron. And it's very well done because it's kind of subtle. To finish this conversation with you, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. That was actually my least favorite part of the movie. Really? Yes. It was just a little bit much. I'm okay with the idea of the wink and the nod. I think they did it too much. It got to the point where they would hint at something. I can tell you exactly when it happened. When you realized that his army companion that was following him around was named Sam. It was too much for me. That was over the line. The winks and the nods then just became eye rolls. (laughs) If they had just toned it down a little bit. Because I agree. It was done beautifully. Especially with the smoke creatures that would appear. It was incredibly beautiful. It was just too much. Hmm. That's fair. I can understand where you're coming from. You tend to not have a lot of uh, patience for shenanigans like that. (laughs) And I know you love stuff like that. I love nonsense like that. So we're coming at it from two different directions, darling. We are. (laughs) So while we're on the topic of the front and Tolkien's journey that was the framing of the movie, he's trying to find Jeffrey. Jeffrey's not that far away, although how he knows where he is, I don't know. I guess because they're both higher ranking, you know, they are privy to information like that. Anywho, so he's traveling down the trenches and he sees some truly horrific stuff. Like the imagery is bad in the trenches. Eventually we discover that Jeffrey is dead and has been for quite some time. For weeks? Like two and a half, three and a half weeks? I believe so. I think they said. (laughs) That leads us into... What I suppose is the climax of the movie didn't really feel like a climax. It doesn't really feel like an act three. And that's my problem is that they drove home how emotional this was supposed to be. And they expected us to feel the same way. And I couldn't feel that. I don't think that they invested enough time into letting us get to know Jeffrey for us to care enough about his death. I think... What they tried to do, as far as making us feel emotions about Jeffrey's death, is they didn't so much focus on, okay, you as a viewer need to feel bad because Jeffrey is dead. I think what they were trying to go for is that you should feel bad about Jeffrey's death because Tolkien feels bad about Jeffrey's death. I mean, there was that shot of him standing over the battlefield, the big smoke making it shaped out of Sauron, and then he wakes up in the VA hospital the whole, you know, Lieutenant Dan ice cream type scene where Edith <laughs> uh-huh. proves her love to Tolkien because she stayed by him and impresses Chief O'Brien. But there's a portion after that where Tolkien brings Jeffrey's mother to the tea club where he and his friends used to sit and he sat her down. It was like, hey, I want to publish Jeffrey's poetry. And this is the seat where he would always sit. And this is the place where we would always dream up our big plans about changing the world with art and all of that other stuff. And I could tell that that scene was supposed to affect the viewer emotionally. Mm-hmm. It did not work. Nope, did not work. And kind of along those same lines of not feeling what the movie was clearly trying to get me to feel is that we know that Robert died as well and Christopher didn't die, but war leaves other kinds of scars. Yeah, they were left estranged after that. Yeah, 
which I totally get that. Yeah, war leaves many kinds of scars. So if another one of his comrades died and the other one has his own things going on, why was Jeffrey's the one that we focused on? I think why was Jeffrey the special one? They focused on Jeffrey because Jeffrey went to Oxford with Tolkien. And I believe that they were doing a bit of a unrequited homosexual romance between Jeffrey and Tolkien. The looks that Jeffrey would give Tolkien every once in a while and the subtext that was in the scenes that they had together, I believe that they were painting Jeffrey as a closeted homosexual who had genuine feelings for his friend Tolkien. Okay, I can get on board with that and I can see what you're seeing. It just wasn't enough. They did not let us get to know their relationship well enough. And I know that, like, <laughs> it's hard to say if they'd had them be roommates at Oxford. Well, this is a true story. If they weren't roommates, they weren't roommates. But if they had been, and we got to see some of their private interactions where they grew closer as friends and as brothers, and we could see why those two had such a connection that Tolkien risked his life and very nearly died just to find out whether or not Jeffrey was okay. See, I feel they did that, though. I feel like Jeffrey being the one to go out and find Tolkien when he was drunk on the quad, stumbling around, I feel like that was a very clear show of the relationship they had. The scene before Professor Wright shows up is the two of them talking about how they'll be friends forever and stuff like that, off to the side, speaking amongst themselves. I felt like the relationship was there. I just wasn't moved by the movie. Yeah. I think we can agree that his death just didn't affect us as much as the movie was trying for, which is really unfortunate because the scene where Tolkien meets with his mother, I thought was very nice. And she was resistant to publishing his poetry. But Tolkien gave a very lovely, a very loving, impassioned speech about why she should. Yeah. Which apparently is the foreword to the book. And it would have. It just it would have been a better scene if I if I got it, if that relationship clicked for me. <laughs> it was close. It was almost there. I just didn't feel it. Yeah. You could tell that Nicholas Holt was acting his heart out, but in the long run, it just didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Aside from all of this negativity, <laughs> what was your favorite thing in this movie? My very favorite thing was the whole opera thing, starting with Tolkien saving his money out of that jar. That was fantastic. And then taking her to something he knew she would love. It was something very specific. It's the best kind of gift, the best kind of date, where it's very specific. I know that you love this thing, and I am going to take you to this thing. How did he preface that? It was something, a German term that didn't have a very good English translation, but roughly came out to gift for the dragon. Yes. She was mad at him, and so he chose the opera to uh, make amends. So they go to the opera, and the section of seats that they can afford are sold out. Now, side question, do you think they were really sold out? Oh, absolutely. You... Okay. Or do you think it was the attendant being snooty? No, I think they were legitimately sold out, because okay. there's no Ticketmaster. This is true. No... I, I have to admit, it did surprise me when they get up to the front and they didn't have tickets. <laughs> Like, wait, you didn't buy them ahead of time? No, people actually used to have to go to the box office. Yeah. <laughs> so they can't get in. And they're about ready to call it quits. Tolkien has the idea of going backstage. And I actually made a comment out loud saying they're going to little women this. 
which I have no context for. Okay. Well, Joe goes on a date with a poor man and he takes her to a play. And of course, they're both pretty poor. They're both teachers. So he knows somebody at the theater and gets them seats in the rigging. So they're watching it from behind the scenes, like way up high. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So which is basically what they do, except that they can't get through the doors, which I don't know why. There was one door that was open. Yeah, there was like an access hallway and then the doors was partially open, but I guess it was chained or blocked in oh, some way where yeah, they couldn't it open it completely. Chained from the other side. So they're ready to give up, uh, but Edith keeps them there and they end up play acting out the opera yeah, as it's going on. Yeah, they can hear everything. Yeah, they can hear it. Fantastic. And they end up having a really fun time and end up being free. And it's it's not what was planned, but that's okay. And I think that says something fantastic about their chemistry, that they have a lot of fun together and they are creative together. And he's J.R.R. Tolkien. He's this fantasy author that we put up on this pedestal as the ultimate in fantasy writing. But she can't keep pace with him and she takes what he makes up and she runs with it and she challenges it and she makes fun of it a little bit sometimes and through their interaction they have a brilliant evening and it was it was really really nice yeah because it was simple and it was quiet and it was a lot of wordless acting Mm -hmm. really letting that chemistry come out yes i really appreciated that scene and it very nearly got the top spot for me as well but the thing that I enjoyed more in this movie was actually the lunch scene where ah. Tolkien takes her out to lunch. She doesn't have a hat. She feels out of place because they are in this super fancy restaurant and they're up on this raised platform in the middle of the eating area. So they're up and everybody can see them. But they start talking about these languages that Tolkien is making and he describes how he's made a very guttural language it's very obvious he's made the dwarven language but the next one he's going to work on is going to be a lot more flowery and musical which Mm -hmm. is obviously the elvish language that he's going to use in lord of the rings but he focuses in on one word specifically which is cellar door and to see them take the word cellar door and then break it down into not only its meaning but the way that it sounds and the different ways that you can say it was immensely immensely interesting to me just to be able to watch two people that are that invested in something and really examine it to break it down to its base elements and analyze it and think up new things from it. I don't know why I of all people would be interested in that sort of thing, considering my (laughs) choice of hobbies, but I just loved the way that they did it where It was a playing off one to another where Tolkien would say something and then Edith would egg him on to elaborate. And by the end of the scene, he's crafted this story about either a kingdom or a place called Cellar Door. And there are these two trees that have grown up entwined together and the two saps from each tree that are poisonous on their own join together to create a salve that's not poisonous, but gives true... Like, there is so much world building that he does over the course of a lunch based on one phrase and how it's able to go from point A to this amazingly intricate point B is entrancing. It was. It was very... Entrancing is a fantastic word for it. And something that I think is very real world 
is that so you have this trans entrancing moment and then what like how do you how do you move on from that it, that can be an awkward transition so to break it Edith takes a sugar cube and tosses it into one of the big fancy hats of the other women at the restaurant and that's how she snaps them out of this story and the romantic nature of it mm -hmm. which is just another thing to like about Edith yeah she's great because she's not sitting there the whole time drooling over his intellect and his creativity and oh he's so amazing she's there and she's invested like the whole way it starts off is she's like oh Celador is that a beautiful princess princess Celador waiting for a knight to ride in on shining armor and he's like no 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 Celador can't be a name of a person it's got to be the name of a place and she's like oh tell me more you know, she's egging him on and actively participating and not sitting there as an entranced passive element. She's an active participant. And it goes back to what I was saying before, where I just really like the two of them together. Mm -hmm. Now, you already mentioned your least favorite thing about this movie being what you consider the heavy handed edition of the Lord of the Rings iconography. And to just elaborate on that a little bit, because I really I don't want to harp on it. Even that scene in the in the restaurant with Edith, like you said, there were languages that were clearly like the Elvish language and the Dwarven language, but he didn't call them those things. We were just supposed to know mm -hmm. it was a wink, like, ha, 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 this is going to be the Elvish language. Because isn't there a character or something in The Lord of the Rings called Celador? I know or something similar to that. There is a character in, I want to say, the Silmarillion. He was featured in one of the video games that I played yeah. called Celebrimbor. Okay. Which ha starts with a C and then has the double O-R at the end. Right. So there was lots of those kinds of things all the way through. He was drawing pictures of orcs and all sorts of things, but they were never specifically like, oh, I have this idea for the story about a hobbit you know there was never anything explicit it was always a little tongue-in-cheek it was always a little bit winky and then at the very end like i think it was the last word of the whole movie was hobbit yeah oh that's so gross no I... that's not no 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 no. oh my gosh i can't stand it okay i can't stand that kind of thing like we all know what he's talking about you have driven it home the only reason we were here watching this movie is because he wrote Lord of the Rings. Like, I you don't need to do that to us. I would have preferred as far as the ending shot is. Because, yeah, the ending shot is him sitting down at his writing desk and he writes out, you know, like in hole a in hole the in the ground. There it's once it's lived how the Hobbit some... starts. Yeah, it's the first line of the Hobbit. But I always heard that the Hobbit was based off of stories that he would tell his kids at night. So I wanted the last shot to be him sitting down, tucking his kids in, and then starting with that first line of the book. Because Edith, at one point towards the end, is like, hey, we left dinner outside your office. The kids wanted to see you, you know, get busy being a dad and enjoying writing or just stop writing altogether if you're not having fun with it or something like that. Yeah. But I wanted it to be a bit more of him being hands-on with his kids instead of him alone in his office writing it out. And then looking out the window and be like, oh, what am I going to call these things? Hobbit. And then, boom, cut to black. Yeah. Overall, I wish the movie had spent less time in his early life that I found less interesting. <laughs> and more time in his family life. Especially because 
The Hobbit was based on stories he'd tell his kids. I agree. Let us see him telling these stories to his kids. He even says they're walking in the woods. It's like the only family scene that we get. Mm -hmm. He's walking in the woods. He says, hey, kids, I need your help with something. I need you to listen to a story. But he doesn't actually tell them a story. Yeah, he's sitting there. It's like, oh, yeah, it's about adventure and quests and alliances and i'm like oh my gosh if that was my dad i'd be so bored i'd like give me a stick i'm gonna go fight a tree yeah like i'm that bored about it launching off of not being impressed with the antics of children i must admit that my least favorite part of this movie was the entire beginning act revolving around young tolkien and his band of brothers i was not a fan of how they behaved. I did not find their enthusiasm to be entertaining. I found it to be rather grating. And I think it might just be because I'm older and a bit jaded that I don't find youthful enthusiasm to be enticing. But yeah, it did not work for me. And it was by far my least favorite part of the movie was watching these four kids pal around and have these high-minded ideals about how they'd like to change the world. I was not for it. I agree. I'm on board with that. We've had movies, again, Dead Poet Society, where schoolboys hang out having high ideals and debating and being creative. It's been done. And I don't think that their age or their class or wealth gave them any frame of reference to actually have these ideas and have these debates. You guys don't actually know anything about the things you're talking about. Yeah. They complain, at least two of them, I think, complain that their parents are also creatives, but as a hobby. Never, oh, never would I be a professional composer. Like, you have no idea. You have no idea what it's like to actually be an adult, live in the real world, and have a creative pursuit, but also have a profession. Honestly, the movie got a lot more interesting for me after they transitioned from the kid actors into the adult actors. As soon as the boys got to be older and to the point where they were ready to move on to secondary education, that's where it got really interesting. Like the scene where older Robert stood up to his dad. Oh yeah, I forgot about that scene. Yeah. That was pretty good. Something I liked about that scene is that it was a private setting. It wasn't a public setting. Yeah. Like, I can get behind the fact that these buddies had this little rallying cry that they would use to inspire themselves to be brave and things like that. Mm -hmm. But to see a situation where Robert's dad comes home early and he's like, get your friends out of here. I don't want them here. And then Robert's like, you know, with all due respect, sir, I made my friends a promise that they could stay here tonight and it would be ungentlemanly for me to refuse them that promise that I made to them. I would very much appreciate it if I was able to keep my word as a gentleman. And he worded it so well. And I believe that you could see on the actor, Lord Grantham's face. <laughs> He's like, oh, I have raised a son who is able to recognize that when a promise is made, a promise should be kept. And I think that was a really good scene. It was a scene involving the adult actors when they had some years on them. Yes. That I really enjoyed. But yeah, watching those kids hang out in the tea shop, I could care less. Yeah. Uh, there's something about the tea shop that grates on my nerves in a very specific way. Yeah. It's the same thing as the TV show Friends. The whole 
this is our cafe. This is our spot at the cafe. And every time we come here, we sit in the same place, take up this entire area and just dominate. That drives me bananas. Well, it also bothered that one guy in that one scene where he was like, oh, will you be quiet and sit down? And he was very stuffy yelling at the kids. But honestly, I was on his side. Right. People go to places like that to sit quietly and have tea and read and some light socializing. Who goes to a tea room to have great debates? High class schoolboys in 1910s England. Yeah, that's very true. That's a legit answer. Kind of surprised. Something that would have been, I think, more effective for, especially for their station, is if they went to a private club because three of the boys were very wealthy, especially the headmaster kid, Robert. Like if he belonged to a club through his father, then they could go there somewhere less public. Eh, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, what, what are your final thoughts or recommendations regarding this movie? I think that if you are a particular fan of The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, I think you will enjoy this movie more for exactly the reasons that I didn't so much. The nods, the winks. You'll love it. That being said, it's not a particularly exciting movie, which is fine. It's a biopic. Most people's lives aren't that exciting. You know, we're just we're just going. And maybe you write a fantastic book somewhere in there. But most of us, we're just plugging along. So that, I feel like, is fairly normal. If you're a fan of his work, then I think there are things you'll enjoy about it. But it's not particularly exciting. Hmm. I would not count myself as a fan of dramatic biographies. It's not something I seek out. It's not something I actively would want to watch. I thought the pacing of this film was rather slow at times, but it was also very well written and very well shot. Technically speaking, very well done. Gorgeous movie to look at. And a lot of the writing was very keen. Very nice. Would I recommend this as a movie to watch for more Nicholas Holt following a viewing of Mad Max Fury Road? No, I would not. I would never tell anybody, oh, you just saw Fury Road? Did you like Nux in it? Oh, you should watch Tolkien to get more of Nicholas Holt. No, I would never do that to someone. I'm no, not a monster. That Venn diagram, I think, overlaps very, very, very little. Yeah. However, if there is someone who, say, watches a lot of Downton Abbey, then by all means, go for it. Because it's going to do a very nice crossover of fantasy interests to real world setting. Like if you love the Lord of the Rings movies and you also love the Downton Downton Abbey movie. Anglophiles. Yeah. They'll love this movie. This movie is so British. Yeah. The only way it would be more British would be if someone said the phrase pip pip cheerio. Kind of surprised nobody did. I know, right? either way that does it for us this time around thank you so much for joining us and we will catch you in the next one the mad max minute podcast is a fan project by rick and julia ingham the mad max franchise was created by george miller and byron kennedy is presented by kennedy miller mitchell productions and distributed by warner brothers tolkien is presented by fox searchlight pictures and churnin entertainment 
Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Public storefront by clicking the store link, join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Mad Max Minute. We'll see you next time.